2: When you go into the first team, without being blasé, I found it easy. My confidence took a huge hit, got battered from pillar to post, 6-12 months in the press. Every time I played poorly, it was under under the microscope. This is something that all of a sudden you're going to wake up the next day and everyone in this country is going to either give you stick, slaughter you, hate you or laugh at you.
0: Hi everyone, here we are for another episode of Off The Shelf with me, Michael Dawson and my co-host Paul Miles. We're not in London, yes, we're back here in Yorkshire with another fellow Yorkshireman. One that got me out of trouble on more
1: than one occasion. You're taking over the world here in Yorkshire, but uh, now we're talking to, to to a goalkeeper who really made an impact. Moved down from Leeds in 2004, within a couple of months, Spurs number one, England number one. We can only be talking about the one and only Robbo, Paul Robinson. Thanks for joining us, pal. All right, thank Robo-ish you for having me. Good to have
2: you, mate. Oh, thank you for having me.
1: We're in Yorkshire. Tell us, Yorkshire lad, tell us about growing up here.
2: I uh, grew up away from here, Beverley, back uh, east Yorkshire. Parents are obviously from Hull. They're still over that way in Beverley. Um, grew up playing Sunday League over there. Started at Hull City, York City. Ended up at Leeds and then signed for for Spurs at 23. Thoroughly enjoy living here. This is... Kind of home to me, although London for four and a half years was home to me. I thoroughly enjoyed living there. But when I came back up to Blackburn, we tried South Manchester for a year. Far too many footballers and footballers' wives for us, though. <laughs> so I moved back over to York, got the kids settled in school and uh, travelled to Blackburn and Burnley for the next nine years from let, here.
0: Let, let's just go back to your early early days. Your, your family were all Leeds fans, signed at Leeds as a young lad, played in the first team. Let's talk about that.
2: I mean, it was it was a difficult choice for me. I was a kid at York, signed schoolboy forms at York and then got offered at Leeds and York. And what was age was that? Uh, believe are 13, 14. 13. And it was a choice of stay at York City and potentially get the opportunity in a first team or to develop earlier. I mean, York are in a higher league than they are now. They're obviously um, where they are. I think, is it non-league? They non-league, are now. yeah. And uh... at the time, it was Division 2 or Division 3, whatever it was. And Leeds were, were obviously in the top flight and it was a case of be a big fish in a small pond or a small fish in a big pond. I mean, hindsight's a great thing to have looking back. It was, it was the right decision, obviously. But um, at the time it was, it was unknown because my dad was a garage mechanic. My me mum worked for my dad, neither of them got particularly, you know, high profile sporting backgrounds or had any kind of dealings with that. So you're going into it cold and you're making decisions without education. You're making uneducated decisions, hoping that you're making the right decisions. And as I say, in hindsight at that time, as a, as a 14 year old kid, he, he took the chance.
0: So you broke into to lead first team at such a young age for a goalkeeper because you think as an outfield player it's different to to uh, to a young keeper. How hard was that?
2: I got a chance due to injury, didn't I? I mean Nigel Martin got injured. Um, I, I was I was I was doing well there without blowing your own trumpet. It was highly thought of there. But I was number three. There was um, Nigel Martin and Mark Beeney. Nigel Martin, I think he broke his rib playing in Europe or a game before that. And it wasn't the days where the second-choice keeper had many games, so Mark Beaney hadn't played many games. So he played the reserves on the Wednesday night before the Saturday game, just because he wanted to get some match practice, the manager thought he needed to play some games. So we knew Nigel was out the Saturday, Mark Beaney played on the Wednesday and he ruptured his Achilles on the Wednesday night. So David O'Leary had between Wednesday and Saturday to find another goalkeeper or he was lumped with me. And thankfully he didn't find one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's wow. a football in fate. I always to say, don't I? Always fate in football is, is incredible. So Robbo, someone's misfortune. Robbo's, Robbo's number three and two in, keepers going in Right a, place in a, at the right a, time yeah. at eighteen years it's old. Just mad. I mean 18. there was
2: no there was no you know, there it wasn't a case of going up the pecking order being given the number one shirt. It was a case of how else he's gonna have to put him in.
0: But you sink or swim.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And you were were swimming, Robbo, because that's when you became... But you know yourself,
2: you get through the first few games on adrenaline. You know, when you go into the first team, without being blasé, I found it easy. I don't know what you thought. Reserve team football's hard. People are lumping the ball, kicking it into the box. And it's, as a defender and a goalkeeper, reserve team football and lower league football, I found more difficult to play than at the top level in the first team. Came into the first team, a couple of games... The one thing that I did find was the concentration levels that you have to have, because you probably over-concentrate, clonking headaches after the game. There was no kind of high for me after the first few games. It was more of a, a come down. It wasn't a celebrate, a go out. It was a, I just want to get home and calm down a little bit. But I found playing first-team football a lot easier than I did reserve-team football. That,
1: that Leeds team at the time, Rob, as well, obviously a special group of players, yeah. Champions League. What was it like to be in and around that at the no, time? No,
2: mate, it, was, it was a great bandwagon to be on. And, and Peter Ridsdale ran the club in a, in a way he's been criticised over the years, but I think he had a lot of respect for the players and I think he he was living out his dream. You know, he's, there was a way of financing the club, whether it was rightly or wrongly. Um, it proved with hindsight to be probably not the best way to do things, but at the time it was sustainable and there was a lot made you know the Champions League run was sensational, and where that Leeds team was, the likes of Rio Ferdinand, Jonathan Woodgate, etc., in the team. We all know what a great team we had, and everyone says it was the club's failure started because we didn't qualify for the because we didn't win the Champions League that year. It wasn't. It was because we didn't qualify for Europe in the league that year. So the club had been financed, and repayments were due, different transfers and everything else. Money was owed, and the club wasn't sustainable because we weren't in Europe the following year. Yes, we lost in the Champions League semi-final. We didn't win the Champions League. But also, we'd taken our eye off the ball in the league and we hadn't secured European qualification. And that was the start of the downward spiral.
1: 2004, Robbo, you come down to, uh, to White Hart Lane. I mean, m- must have been a big decision for you. Obviously, you're, you're born and bred up here in Yorkshire. You're coming down to London to, to play for Spurs, was it? I mean, what convinced you? What persuaded you to come and make that move?
2: I'd already made my mind up in January. I mean, I spoke openly about this before. In the, in the w- winter window of that year, Tottenham came to sign me. Um, I came down to White Hart Lane, did my medical in January, did my medical, agreed terms, done everything. And then I think then Leeds changed the goalposts and they said we're struggling because of the financial turmoil that they're in. This is right at the end of it. This was kind of the fire sale. The, the last few were getting pushed out the door and I was one of those. And um, Leeds realised in that window that they wanted to loan me back to the end of the season. And at the 10th hour on the transfer deadline day, Leeds also were told that they had far too many players on loan. They couldn't do it. They had their quota of players on loan. So my move to Tottenham, I'd done my medical agreed terms, met Daniel Levy, met John Alexander at the time. I spent a couple of days in London. Everything was done. Everything was agreed. At the 11th hour, the, the plug got pulled because Leeds had too many players on loan and that their quota was full. So I, Daniel Levy shook my hands, as, as John Alexander did. And as as a a good man that he was at the time, and he still is, to his word, said to me, I'll see you in the summer. We'll come and get you again in the summer. And that was it. So I'd had my head on going. I was leaving. I was coming to Tottenham in in January. And then I was going back up the M1 on loan. And then that couldn't happen. So I was just going back up the M1 with absolutely nothing. So we were a really poor Leeds team at that time. I went on to concede 50-odd goals that year. We got relegated. And they still come back and got me. Can you believe it? Wow.
0: Well, how, how, that must have been hard, though. You're driving back up the M1 and you think, wow, I'm going back to, to Leeds tomorrow, like a club that you owe everything to. You've had your opportunity,
2: yeah. but
0: you're having an absolute nightmare because you're going to get relegated in that season.
2: We was It was always on the cards, yeah. I mean, because of the, the way that the club was, the financial state of it um, and the situation where, where it was at the time. Um, relegation seemed very, very likely. But like I say, the funny thing was I shipped a busload of goals and Daniel was still true to his word. He still come and got me, but there was no agreement. Nothing was done. Nothing was like, obviously he couldn't. There was it was a gentleman's thing. He shook my hand and he said, look, we've, we wanted you now. We'll come back in the summer. And true to his word, as soon as the window opened in the summer, he came back. They knew what they were doing, Robo. <laughs> to get rid of him, send him <laughs> back. <by. laughs>
1: It's a fascinating <laughs> story, Robbo, that um, you told me not too long ago. Um, Hang uh, South- on, careful, which one? No, no.
2: <laughs> Neville,
1: Neville Southall was your goalkeeping hero. Yeah. How about this, doors? So, Robbo signed for Spurs. He's at White Hart Lane doing a photo shoot. As was your, this, was as this our, in January or as was our, this in August this is in the summer no this yeah. was the proper signing yeah. yeah you know just you know, in, the, in doing yeah. the proper new the signing photo shoot hold your shirt up on the pitch job yeah. that yeah. one yeah. who turns up at White Hart Lane
2: no Neville was there Neville Southall was Neville there Neville Southall was at White Hart wow. Lane he's, he works closely with different charities and okay. he's there at White Hart Lane taking a group of his kids around on a tour like
0: you right, they're
2: then? visiting and I'm like wow it's Neville Southall and yeah. we just stopped stopped the photo stopped, and I just went to talk to him and all the kids were like, oh, it's Paul Robinson, he's signed from Leeds, yeah. it's Tottenham's new signing. They all wanted to talk to me and they had absolutely no idea what Neville did yeah. because he's so unassuming, he's so humble. Yeah. He's, he obviously doesn't sit there and tell his kids what he used to do with the, the people that he works with. Yeah. One of the greats of the game, they had no interest or knew very little about him and all I wanted to do was speak to him. It was, and he signed the shirt I was holding on the pitch, he signed it for me. Still got it to this day.
0: So it was a year, year before I came in, Rob, or you, you signed... Um... When you were going into that dressing room, who were the players that you first remember? I know Kino, you chaired a dressing
2: room with. Yeah, Keno was there. Um... It was difficult. because so I went in as a, a youngster, still. In hindsight, at mm. 23, What age were 20, we, Twenty-three. Wow. Twenty-three. We were building
1: as well, weren't we? I mean, you were like you were one of seven debutants. again yes, I, the I first think game. I
2: still put that down as the start of what the club yeah, is now. Hundred percent. I think Martin, not not at that point, because when I signed, the club didn't have a manager. I signed for Platy, yeah, with mm. the promise of a manager coming in, who was Jacques Santini, Sini. which yeah. obviously didn't work it at the time. Was, yeah. So I, I still believe that that mm. when Martin came in, and that group of players. It's miles away from what the team is now, but I think that was the start. And I think that was the start of the intention of where the club wanted to get to. And I was, I think I was seen as coming in as Casey Keller's number two, really. The first in the season, started pre-season, did really well and then got, got given the opportunity. So it was, it was difficult for me coming into such a big club. It felt immediately like you signed for a massive club. I mean, you know what it's like. Yeah. I mean, Nottingham Forest is a big club. Yeah. Leeds United is a big club. The fan base worldwide is huge. And I still to this day say the, the word sleeping giant is massively overused. But for a club like Leeds, it's not. That is the stereotypical sleeping giant at times. And the, the fan base, the foundation of Leeds, I was still walked into Tottenham and I thought, massive club I've signed for. Immediately you feel that the presence and the history around the place.
0: So you make your debut in a 1-1 draw with, with Liverpool. Mm-hmm. And then the love you had with the fans, the fans had the love with you. Like, Just talk about that connection you had with them. I know they used to love it. When I, when I signed, it was all England's number one, Paul <laughs> Robinson. The love you had was incredible. Yeah, they really took to you. They did, mode, massively, they? massively.
2: Away. It was reciprocated, though. And I think the, listen, the minimum requirement everywhere is maximum effort. And not everyone gives you that. And for me, what it means to you, I'm ultra competitive. It was just about winning and what you do. I mean, there's only you that can affect everyone else's mood in that crowd. And it's very difficult as players to... Say thank you to the crowd, and you don't often have that. And the report I have, I don't go across at the end of the game to celebrate how well we've played. You go across to say thank you to the fans. Yeah. Football ain't cheap to watch. Mm. It's, not an easy, it's not an easy life being a football fan, travelling the world, tra- travelling Europe, travelling up and down the country, and it's expensive. And us as players don't get the opportunity to say thank you. So when players get criticised after games for not going to thank the fans or to, to clap the fans, it's not about how the team's performed. You can understand you're disappointed, you can understand you've not played well. Regardless of what you've done, they've still turned up. So there was there was a mutual respect there, and I think the interviews that I did, they, I was, I hope I'm kind of a personable person, if if that makes sense. And I think it was it was relatable to people.
1: Looking at the squad, I mean, obviously, so Doors comes in, in in the April two thousand, the size of the April of that season, and all of a sudden we got JJ there, Aaron Lennon, Doors yourself, Tommy Hudd. Kino's still a younger man, JD's there. This squad is is ready to go, isn't it? I mean, look, in a couple of years' time, you'd end up winning the League Cup. A couple of years after that, we'd qualify for the Champions League. But at that time, did you feel that this was a squad that was ready to go places? We spoke
2: about Leeds. In a way, it's relatable to the Leeds side. You know, you look at the young players, you look at the age of the players, a young, fearless, carefree squad with no scars. Football scars you, and as you get older... Your confidence drops at times because of what's happened in the past. You sometimes stopped for playing in a certain way or doing certain things you want to do in games because of what's happened to you. You'll play safe. And we were young, we were carefree. Very few in that team had mental scars from what happened in the past. Criticism, um, bad performances, etc., etc. It was a, a, a young team playing with without the shackles on. We'd had the the manager Jacques Santini. Didn't work. The language barrier was a huge problem. I, I don't for one minute think he was he was a bad man. I think he was a good man. I think his intention was correct. But the, the managerial structure with him, Martin, Chris Euton was there. It just didn't work with him in charge and trying to implement his ways straight away. Martin was given the job. and It was like a breath of fresh air for us as players. All of a sudden, you could see Martin in the background, they were chomping at the bit, wanting to do this session, wanting to do that session. But because the manager was in charge, he couldn't. And all of a sudden, we got the coach that everybody liked, everybody respected in a position that everyone wanted him in. And it was it, it can it was a situation that worked.
1: The game I remember, Robbo, that sort of, that really convinced me that we were ready to go was the last North London derby at Highbury. Do you remember that? It was it ended up a one all draw. Yeah, we played so well that day, and I'd I'd been going to Highbury watching us have some tough days at Highbury, but we took the really took the game to them. It included. Obviously, playing on when a, a player went down for Arsenal, we played on and scored that goal. Did we? Yeah. My first I mean, North, look, it North it, London it, derby, it, that was. It, it, it ends up 1-0. but that when got game. Battered and
2: the bus coming bus? out of it? The yeah. bus yeah. got felted done. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Coming out of hybrid, there's yeah. all them shops with the low flat roofs. And there's just people stood on the flat roofs. And because the bus was obviously at that height... The top of a shop window was the perfect height. I just remember turning around, looking out the bus window, and somebody stood at the window like that, yeah, throwing something.
0: We stopped at a junction and we were like, What were we stopped for? We looked out the bottom of the bus, clear, and then because we're at a Police
2: T-junction, on duty yeah, that day. Must and have been Arsenal fans. we got no police, nothing. Like, we just I, got out of the dressing room, into the bus, you know, where the old highbury, the, the back of highbury stand is. Bus just tootles off down the road. All of a sudden. A, My first North a,
0: London derby. I was thinking, what's happening here? I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. <laughs> but We're it was it
1: was here. that performance that that convinced me that this team could to, could go. That was a performance, and it, it was a together. There was
2: something in the performance, but I still think we had an issue with Arsenal at, at that time. I mean, we were inferior to them. The Tottenham teams that I played in were inferior because the, you look at the quality that the Arsenal team had and as much as it pains me to say it, and you know, I take great pride in every time anyone beats Arsenal, but for me, and I think a little bit of that in me, the underlying thing is, one, because I had a personal vendetta with Thierry Henry because every time he played, it was Thierry 4, <laughs> even at Leeds. <laughs> I think you only scored one that night. Oh, when he came I rem- Listen, I remember him playing at Leeds. We played 20 minutes in. I looked up at the scoreboard. I think it was 4-0 and he'd had three oh. of them already. And I think that was the start of it for me. <laughs> And that Arsenal always seemed to be a bogey team for me, yeah. and obviously playing at Tottenham, the hatred develops, and and still to this day, it's there's there's a dislike there. And
1: we're supposed to be neutrals as well now. When we're well, not today, oh, well, when, you're bit, working, when you're working, you have working, to be. Yeah, but it's, it's, still, it's very, very, it's difficult. very difficult. Very difficult. Rob, but. Tell us about some of these players in in a sort. I mean, obviously, so you got a young Michael Dawson coming in as centre back. So now you've got Letty and Dawes playing in front of you. What was that like as a as a pairing to start with?
2: Calamitous. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good job I was there Milesy. <laughs> no, I mean you you look at the the two of them that you look at where they both got to in their careers. With lots made about Ledley's injuries and what could have would have should have Ledley Ledley trained. Don't be fooled. Ledley trained. Ledley trained in a way that he would keep himself fit for a Saturday. So if we were doing two pitch sessions on a Monday Tuesday, he wouldn't necessarily need to do that. He'd be in the gym, he'd be doing his strength and conditioning. It wasn't a situation where oh he doesn't train all week and he just plays on Saturday. His training was tailored, and he trained every day to ensure that he could get out on a Saturday if he was fit enough to do so. And, and these two together, I mean, it was a great partnership. Doors um, came. You were still... You know, what were I was you? still in 21 you when I was 21 came. And
0: in 21. And Rob, we touched on when Robbo was there. Ledley trained pretty much most of the time, because yeah. that was my first three or four years. Yeah. It was only his latter stages yeah. when yeah. he was he probably really four trouble. or like, five. It wouldn't did be trouble, like that. Right? that yeah. He, he yeah. didn't. But we, we had a great... I used to prefer Ledders with,
2: playing holding midfield. You know, in the roddery role now. Okay, yeah. He was, he was brilliant. Martin he, played him there yeah, a couple of times. Yeah, but because yeah. of his ball retention and his ability with his feet and the way that he was so much better than the other centre-halves at the club with the ball at his feet, <laughs> <it> was, <laughs> he was <laughs> he was great in centre-midfield <laughs> there. <laughs> <laughs> nah, he was a legend. He was a legend.
0: Let's, uh, le- let's talk about, there's not too many uh, goalkeepers who've scored at White Hart Lane, Rob. Well, let's talk about that goal
2: that was a fluke, wasn't it? Well, it was a Absolute, but it's still, fluke, but
0: it's still special, no?
2: No, oh, of course it is. I
1: remember you feeling more sorry for Ben Foster than sort of celebrating a goal. I didn't feel sorry for him. Union. I
2: didn't feel sorry for him. I was worried that the ref was going to give an indirect free kick. So I've seen the ball go into the goal, and I didn't celebrate, and I'm thinking, what's happened here? Is he going to blow for an indirect free kick? Has anybody touched it? Is it offside? Because it's that far down, you don't actually see if anyone's touched it or what's gone on. And it wasn't until after all the boys had jumped on me, and I think the coity on the tanner, he went, the goal scorer is... And it was it was just a surreal moment, but it's one of them. Like you say, you'll never forget. I've still got all the well, my dad's got all the stuff. He's got boots, gloves, full kit, and the football.
1: And the ball yeah. You know oh, the I story.
2: Yeah, you know the story about that. Don't have told, I've told this story no, before. No, no, I've never. Ref this. nicked it. So I it was a kit man at the time. Was it Roy or was it Jukesy? No, Jukesy I think it was Jukesy. Jukesy was, yeah. was there. Jukesy yeah. comes in, said, oh, give us all my kit." So he's boxed all my kit up for me and went, "Where's the ball?" Well, oh, do you know what? I never thought about that. So Dukes, he goes on this mad one-man mission to find the match ball for me. Round White Hart Lane, who's got the ball away, team dressing room. Long story short, he comes in about 20 minutes later, panting, sweating, ball under his arm. Where have you been? He went out to the car park to get out the referee's car. The ref was taking it with him. <laughs> the ref was taking the ball with him. Well, I never. So I've got the full well, it's lot.
0: It's a souvenir, I it guess. It would have been. It would have been. would
2: have got, got the full lot. But I think, listen, I've got a lot, lot uh, to thank Mido for, for that he doesn't move very far, does he? <laughs> I am <was> looking <laughs> at
0: everything. Like, well, you know there? what it's like. Yeah. Listen, if
2: the ball doesn't land yeah. in a four-yard radius, yeah. he ain't moving okay. for it, is he? Yeah. And the fact that he didn't go and challenge for a header and he just left it alone. That and he, was, to, I think it he was probably he? halfway through throwing his arms up to me yeah. like that because yeah. I kicked it wide yeah. of him, <laughs> and then he realised he's gone in.
1: Okay, so great days are around the corner. 2008 League Cup. League Cup final was an incredible day yeah. against a, a, a magnificent Chelsea team. Let's not beat around the bush. We played so well that day, Robbo. I mean, what what are your memories of that?
2: Nah, listen, It was. I knew I was going at that point, though, Marzi, didn't I? I mean, we've talked about this before. I wasn't playing particularly well after the England-Croatia game when the ball went over my foot. My confidence took a huge hit. Got battered from pillar to post six to 12 months in the press. Every time I played poorly, it was under the, under the microscope. Mm. I needed somebody who was going to put an arm around me, give me a bit of confidence, say, look, you're not going to play this week. I'm taking you out. Go and have a week away with your family. Come back in four weeks. One day, Ramos wouldn't give me that. So when we came around to two thousand and eight Cup final, I knew I was done. I knew I was finished. But for me to to win the trophy and to give the fans something back at, at Wembley that day, it was it was pretty special. You
1: literally gave it back because I remember you taking I just the remember, trophy yeah, just over up to, to them, the fans. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, and that yeah. was and that was what it was was for me because I knew I was going.
1: Talk to me about moments in that game that we all remember, but from your perspective, like Berbers coolest penalty in the history of football even though it's in a cup final at Wembley for, for us I mean what was that like I mean obviously Didier was in front of you looking, looking away wasn't he
2: yeah so. it's vivid memories of the game um, you remember Berber's penalty and it was Woody that scored the yeah, winner yeah, well yeah. Peter Chet punched his head then yeah, he punched yeah. the ball off his head um, but yeah you're right we were an inferior side going into that game yeah. we, were, we were the underdogs but it was just one of those performances one of those days where it, it went our way and like you say Berber so you want anybody in that that position with a cool head? Did all right, didn't he? Yeah, Let's
0: just touch on. We we're, were speaking uh, about good times. Let's touch on Vicario. How impressed have you been with him? How is how important is it when you go to a football club? You hit the ground running.
2: Hugely impressed with him. Um, he's got a lot of tests to come. It's his first season. Yeah, he's he's a, a good age. I like the way he commands his box. I think his distribution's excellent and taking over from Hugo, the big shoes to fill.
1: I want to talk to you about um, your England career and, and your career beyond Spurs, but just while we're talking about Vicario, I'm just fascinated to get your thoughts on how goalkeeping has changed over the years. Now, As a goalkeeper, you could ping a ball as well as any any person I've seen. Still got the most ping assists of,
2: in the Premier League. Ping, incredible. It's about to change, though. Somebody will pass it soon because they're all quarterbacks now, aren't they?
1: But... I mean, the way that the goalkeeping has changed now, you'd now be, you know, obviously you'd be taking it short in the box, clipping little passes out. How, I mean, this goalkeeping has changed well, more see, than did, any other role. If right?
2: I did some of the stuff the goalkeepers do now, managers I'd play for would take me off at half time. <laughs> they'd have a they'd heart Doing a Cruyff turn on your goal line and passing it out to your fullbacks. Mate, goalkeepers don't take dead ball kicks anymore. Yeah. The centre half passes mm. it to the goalkeeper five yards from the goal. I mean, but it's, you'd be, it's changed. You know, you know I, I, play. I, I think yes, you I would. Play, so yeah, you'd I would. Be all right, right? Yeah, I would be okay with it, and I'd, I'd, I'd enjoy it because that's the side of the game that I really enjoyed—the distribution side of the game. But the, it, it has changed. Gone are the days where the goalkeeper puts the ball down on the six-yard line and kicks it down the field.
1: Because Fraser was saying, Fraser Forster was saying that the, the goalkeeper position has probably changed more than any other position in football over the last few years.
2: Yeah, it has because everybody's looking to be the innovator. Everybody wants that next bit. Pep started it with a hybrid goal with a hybrid goalkeeper as a quarterback. Then, he, then he does the hybrid fullback in centre midfield. And like it or not, football does change, and everybody's looking for something a little bit different. And the the goalkeeper becoming part of your back four. Sometimes it helps. Sometimes it doesn't. I'm I'm not a huge fan. I must admit, I'm not a okay. huge fan. The uh, David Seaman's quoted recently, and I agree with him. There's the fundamentals of goalkeeping, keeping the ball out the net, is is getting lost. You're asking your goalkeeper to do a lot more than what a goalkeeper should and they're forgetting what you, you're supposed mm. to do. You've got gloves on for a reason. Use them, keep the ball out the net and distribute to players. There's a reason you're a goalkeeper because you're not good enough to be an outfield player. So and that's it. You know, that's goalkeepers and goalkeepers are goalkeepers because they're not good enough to be outfield players. Referees are referees because they're not good enough to be goalkeepers. Just, and, that's, <laughs> and you keep going down and that's and that's what it is. Everybody wants to be a striker. Work your way down the pitch. Then when you finish at the goalkeeper, you come off the pitch. So and that's and that's how it works. Um, but it works for certain teams with certain players and a goalkeeper has got to be at a level where he can do that. I, I, I like certain aspects of it, but goals aren't scored in your final third with the ball at the goalkeeper's feet.
0: Well, Robbo, you certainly kept the ball out of the back of the net and while you were at Spurs, you were Spurs number one, you became England number one. How much pressure and how, much, how proud were you because when I played for England, I felt the nerves. And you you were playing it in every game, every tournament. How hard was it? But how special did that feel?
2: Yeah, of course it does. I mean, it's the old saying that everyone's dreamed to play for your country mm-hmm. and the highlight of your career. Looking back on it, the, the old golden generation that we were in. And the, it was, by the way. It was unbelievable. But we had square pegs in round holes. I believe that team, yes, the golden generation, the players, the names on the team sheet, phenomenal. But in a rigid four-four-two system. We had Joe Cole, Paul Scholes playing left wing because we were playing 4-4-2 or 4-4-1-1. You look at the hybrids now, you look at the formations now, you, you, you put in a system. The players that we had playing with a manager who is tactically aware now of a system that suits his players I think would be different. And I think we were a victim of being far too rigid with what we had. But the pressure of playing for England was different. I mean, Gareth's managed that pressure with this England squad. We were the golden generation, so we were expected to win. The press reaction was difficult after an England game. If you won, you were expected to. If you drew or lost, you'd get slaughtered, regardless. And even if you won and if you didn't win well enough, you'd still get criticised. It was almost a poison chalice. And it was a very, very difficult situation to be in. You had to win every game.
1: What was World Cup 2006 like? I mean, obviously involved in the penalty shootout in the end against uh, Portugal. It was what, was it, what was it like Strange. being involved?
2: It was tournament football. And at that time... The risk of getting on my soapbox now we as England players at the time weren't used to playing tournament football, if you were good enough you got fast-tracked, they would see that sitting on the bench for the first team or being involved in a squad with the first team would do you more benefit than going away with the 21s and playing a tournament, whereas we've realised now because at England youth level 17s, 18s, 19s, 20s the success that they've had, you look at that players now coming into the first team Jude Bellingham for example, one example tournament football is very different you spend six weeks of a at the end of a season in a hotel with 23 squad members and probably 40 staff members that you might not necessarily choose to spend your time with and you've, you, you're in a very small environment and it's a different way of, of doing things and we were inexperienced at that. I think the whole WAGs thing around the 2006 World Cup was difficult for us and we never we never kind of got going, we never played well, we, we struggled through the group, we got through the group, got through the last 16 and then the Portugal the penalties. Coincidentally, that was our best performance—the Portugal game. Getting to penalties with ten men after Wazir had been sent off, there was almost a feeling of a, a togetherness. A, that was a hindsight again. But if we'd have got through that, what what could we have achieved after a performance like that that would have brought everybody together? I was I was delighted it went to penalties because of the way the game was, I'd done so much research at my time with the penalties. Me and my coach, God rest his soul, Ray Clements at the time, um, watched penalties, studied penalties. I knew who was coming up in what order and what their safety penalty was. So I was at the risk of going far too far into it. I used to like to analyse a player's safety penalty. There's no point in watching a player take a penalty in the last minute when his team's 4-0 up. Because I'd probably do a Penenka or chip yeah, it into the yeah, top corner. Yeah. You need to watch players take a penalty under a pressure situation when it's 0-0 in the last minute or in a penalty shootout, what they've done before. So I had every single one and knew which order they'd come up and what was their safety penalty. My problem was they knew that I knew it. And that's penalties now now more than anything. It's more of a double bluff game than anything. You can watch and you can study 50 penalties of a player coming up. He knows you've done that. And you know that he's done that with you. So it's now a double bluff, like the the penalty with Ronaldo in the last. Ronaldo's safety penalty, high to my right. I've flown high to my right, he's gone high to my left. And it is, it's just a case of bluff these days.
0: It wasn't all rosy. When you had an English shirt on. I remember you coming back to Spurs and it was so hard. We look at Croatia, yeah. that bobble. How did you deal with that? That surrounded, the, the scrutiny. I mean, getting slaughtered. You talked about playing for England. That must have been so hard, mate.
2: Villa Park the weekend after. The whole end, every time the ball comes near. Yeah. Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> How, hard was it How hard was it, Robbo? It was horrible yeah. because you're, you're, you're not scarred. We talked about this before. You've never had experience of this. There's no life lessons of this. This is something that all of a sudden you're going to wake up the next day, and everyone in this country is going to either give you stick, slaughter you, hate you, or laugh at you. The laughing bit was the worst, and it's the it's the bit that affects you away from football. I mean, there's a lot made of mental health now, and rightly so, and there's there's a lot more awareness of it. But when you're in a situation like that, nobody can help you. There's no nobody's going to. You can't press a button and stop everybody writing articles about you, or you can't press a button and make you play well on Saturday or make it disappear. I remember speaking after the game, speaking to family and stuff. And other than that, I mean, the whole thing in that game was just about that. Yeah. But I played well in that game until half-time had kept us in the game. I was having a real good game. i come off the game feeling, well, yeah, done all right there. And there's absolutely nothing I could have done about yeah. what happened. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I found people up after the game and blah, blah, blah. And i was like, oh, yeah, it's... Now, we weren't great and we got away with it. People were saying, you all right? Yeah, fine. Why, what's up? They'd be like, you've no idea what's going on, have you? I went, what do you mean? No idea what's going on. I went, you are getting absolutely battered, pasted. I'm like, right, okay. So at that point after the game, you still don't realise. And in the next couple of days, you go, oh, right, okay. Because of the David Beckham incident in the World Cup, the scrutiny that goes with it, I'm thinking, wow, here we go. My turn. But you still don't know how it's going to affect you. I mean, taking the kids to the school, yeah. dropping the kids at school, there might be a group of mums over there talking and laughing. You in your head go, Are oh, they laughing at me? they Are talking about me? You go to the supermarket and you'll hear somebody who go, oh, And it affects you all the time, constantly. And then you go out on a pitch in front of 40, 50, 60,000 people. And as
1: a goalkeeper, there's nowhere to hide. There's
2: nowhere there? to hide. No, yeah. that's what the net's there for to stop you running for the ball. Because if it goes past you, it's in there, isn't it? <laughs> and, and that's unfortunately, that's, that goes with the nature of the beast. But as as, as a high-profile mistake like that goes, there, there is no lesson. But it, was it tough.
1: a mistake, though? I still can't accept well, that. That's that's a, a, yeah. that's it, was, it
2: was a mistake from Gary Neville because she taught as a kid to pass the ball wide of the goal because the goalkeepers aren't good with the feet, you see. <laughs> <laughs> but in this day and age now... But they took
0: a touch now, not But in the, this the, day and age the, the, now, the
2: because if they're playing the way we do now... My first thought from that back pass from Gary Neville wouldn't have been to put it up the line. My first thought would have been to have a touch and bring it inside, which would then probably hit my shin and not gone over my foot. But I've gone to kick the ball. Listen, I will do that a million times, and you put the same bobble in there without telling you. It's going over your foot. There's nothing you can do.
1: Looking back at that, Robbo, I mean, how do you... I mean, it, <clears throat> it's probably easier to talk about it now. It's so many years ahead, but... How, did, how do you think it affected you at the time? Did, I didn't want to talk you know, about it. I hate no. it. I've never talked so about it. When you you brought back... me here today and you've really upset me. <laughs> <laughs> I've
2: never wanted to talk about it. I'm leaving, Milesy, <laughs> That's it. I'm gone. <laughs> but
1: I do remember when when, when you came back. because we, we You were don't gonna, want to talk about we, it because you we can't deal with in, it. We were going to do an interview with you. Yeah. To Just so you could get something out there. Yeah. I remember that. And uh, you, you hide yourself away. Fallen,
2: you, you bury yourself. Yeah. Because all of a sudden you've gone from sat on your perch as England's number one and almost not untouchable you get criticism and you understand criticism but that was a whole different level it was personal you know you come out your gates in the morning and there's photographers there and you've got young kids in the car and the kids are like what's that dad? dad what's what's going on it's not the football criticism you can understand that because there are a lot of small-minded narrow-minded people in and out of the press who will gladly take a pop at you and that's part of the territory but it's when it affects your personal life and your, your daily life and you still think you're thinking well what else could I have done God, I've not done it on purpose. The last thing I'd do is do it on purpose. I've not in, hurt anybody. I've not done anything. If I was to do the same thing again, it would happen again. And it's a really, really this tough is life I lesson. Say it.
1: it's, I can't put it it's down. Not, it's not an
0: error, is it? You, as a mistake
2: but as a person, but like you say, as a person, you don't know how to deal with it because you've never had to deal with it before. And anybody who has that amount of scrutiny and that amount of criticism from not just family and friends or written press, but all over the place... It's, it's difficult to deal with but as a footballer you're expected to go out on Saturday and play again I wasn't playing particularly well but you know my mindset I wanted to train harder I wanted to play and keep going when actually I probably needed a manager to. I couldn't see the wood for the trees mm. I needed the manager to put his arm around me and go not playing well at the moment I'm going to take you out for a little bit you're this that this is what I think of you Radek's going to play for the next four or five games get yourself a weekend away come back and we'll go again I'll speak to you at the end of next week and build it up from there and build my confidence in a way that Rondé Ramos didn't.
1: Because you sometimes come a better player when you're not playing.
2: Exactly. You know it's, it's like yeah, quite like often.
1: Blackburn were next then. I mean, you had a, a, a long spell at Blackburn, didn't you? And what, what, Seven what years, the longest of yeah. my career. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, perhaps people don't... Got them read. relegated as well. Perhaps <laughs> <laughs> people don't realise that, Robbo. I mean, the, no. the amount of time you were there.
2: Listen, I'd, I had a great time at Blackburn and it was great for me it's, this is going to sound wrong, but it's not meant as it's going to sound. It was great for me to get out at Spurs because of Wander Ramos, not because of everything. I had the happiest time, the best time of my career at Tottenham, bar none. But the way it was for me, it became untenable, so I had to go. And for me to get out was was a relief. Um, there was talk of me going to Aston Villa at the time as well. I'd nearly signed for Villa before when I was at Leeds, but I was still at Leeds. Were still in the Premier League, so I stayed at Leeds that season. Met Martin O'Neill, was going to go to Villa. They ended up signing Brad Friedel, which then opened the Blackburn door for me to go to Blackburn. Mm. The season I signed for Blackburn, they finished higher than Tottenham in the league, which I was I was signing for an established, well-run club, who Paul Ince was the manager. You, um, got, you
1: got some reception when you came back to White Hart Lane, by the way. I was,
2: I was dead and still do now. It was brilliant. Um, and, and the same at Leeds as well. I had a good rapport wherever I've gone. And I signed for a, a, a stable football club that were a, you quality players in the team which was shortly sold to the Venkies and the rest is history.
0: You went through a hard time, though. You had a big back operation, yeah. and you got a blood clot in your lung. Yeah. Talk us through that, that people maybe don't... don't I nearly, too much
2: nearly died, didn't I? Yeah. nearly went. Um, I, was, I was having sciatica. I mean, there's only people that have sciatica that'll understand the pain. And I was driving from here, from Yorkshire, to, to Blackburn every day, and I was stopping the car almost in tears some days because of the pain I was in. No back pain. It was all through my backside and hamstring, down your leg. And it's, the only way you can describe it is like somebody strips your hamstring back and you're just constantly flicking it with a, with a fingernail. It's a horrible pain to have. Um, but I was playing through that. And at the time at Blackburn, they were in change. The finances were the way they were. I wasn't necessarily being used because of the contract I was on. So I then, I said to the, the manager, I said, look, I need to go and get this sorted out. I need, need my back operation. So I went and had a disc removed from my back. A week later, I discovered that I had a, a blood clot on my lung. So it's a 0.00% chance in an operation. And lucky me, I got it, didn't I? So it was a week after I was coughing up blood. So I went to the, the local hospital here and they said, I did a chest X-ray. Fine, no problem, sent, sent me home. They said, it's just where you've had the, the tubes pushed down your throat from the operation. If a doctor tells you all right, if the hospital tells you all right, you presume you're all right. But still at the back of my mind, I'm thinking operation was over a week ago. That night, chest gets tighter, coughing up a lot more blood. Feels like chest been stood on, get blue lighted into Leeds the next day. Got a blood clot in my lung. So that's me then done for, for six months. Thankfully that they found it that day or else, or thankfully for me that it stopped where it did because once a DVT, a blood clot moves in your body, it stops where it wants to stop. And I think there's two entrances to your lung, the top and the bottom. Mine stopped at the bottom, which was okay. And I lost the, the bottom half of my right lung for a while. Um, but yeah, that took ages to get back from. But the thing was with that, you feel okay after about two or three months, but you've got to be on warfarin on the blood thinners. So I was on injections for about two months, the heparin injections to thin your blood, to make sure it doesn't happen again and to get rid of the clot. And then you stay on warfarin for a set amount of time. But after three months you start feeling fine and you want to train. But you can't do anything because you're on blood thinners yeah. so if you cut yourself, cut yourself all the blood yeah, like comes I, out yeah. or if oh, you hit your mind. arm or anything you're yeah. gonna your bruise is gonna be ridiculous wow so i'm saying to doctors look i'm all right i want to go i want to train i want to get going again but i couldn't find any doctor that would sign me off the six month prescribed yeah, thing no, so i had to stay on them for six yeah. months they wouldn't let me back and early be
0: saying it nicely would he <laughs> I'd, be, <laughs> I'd be growling <laughs> at them. but
2: coming back from that was hard listen i've i mean where we live here in in it's, it's a very hilly place. The river and the steps. I was starting when I got back out of bed and starting to feel normal. I was walking up some of the hills. I felt like a 95-year-old smoker with asthma. You know, it was it took you so long to get going. Like the bottom half of my lung had gone. But then I come back from it, and I wanted to wanted to get back and play again.
1: And you you obviously played at Burnley, up um, about 18 months there, I think.
2: It was it was great, Marzi, the way it finished because the way my contract comes to an end at Blackburn. I got back, got back playing, got back in the first team and played again after that. But then obviously the financial situation, the manager couldn't use me. I think they thought by taking me out of the team in December, I'd leave when I'm 36 and I've got six months left of a very lucrative deal that I signed in good faith. So the manager, Gary Bowie, I think it was at the time, is like, look, I'm not going to drag you around putting you on the bench. Um, you know, you're know, you not part of the first team plans it's, it's one of those. So it was like, okay, fine, fair enough. He said, just don't be a bad egg around the place. He said, I know you won't because the type of person you are. I said, I said, I can't do that. I said, but I'm here if you need me and I'll keep training and keep myself right. And I'm thinking in that six months, because my contract's up in the summer and I'm kind of thinking the way those six months went, I'm thinking that's me done. So I've started going in, training, first couple of weeks, yeah, get your own keep yourself right, have another go somewhere else, get a move. And then after two or three weeks of not playing, your interest kind of wanes and it's it's difficult, especially at 36.
1: Was your back all right then? As well, back was right? all right, yeah, yeah,
2: it was all good, back to normal. This was quite a while after it, so I was fully recovered. But you just get to you're 36, you're just thinking, you're going in every day, I'm thinking, what am I doing? What am I training for? So then i go to the gaffer after a couple of weeks ago. Gaffer, do you mind if I have uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday off this weekend? Kids are off this weekend. Yeah, yeah, fine, no problem. A couple of weeks later, thought, right, that works. Um, gaffer, it's half term next week. Do you mind if I have a week <laughs> off? He's like, yeah, no problem. Get yourself away. And then long story short, I ended up going in two days a week playing badminton with the physios.
0: Oh, wow. From <laughs> where well, to get a good contract, isn't huh? <laughs> it?
2: But that was just the way it yeah. was in the situation it was. He didn't want and couldn't have me around the first yeah. team and I didn't want to be a problem. And if I was needed, I was, I was ready. So I'd say to the physios, I'd, we'd have a like, WhatsApp chat and I'd, I'd text the physios, what you got on in the morning? said, right, well, the lads are in at nine till ten. I said, right, I'll come in at quarter past ten when the physio room's empty on court we would have our own little badminton tournaments. And that's when, my bla- that's when my career ended in my head. I was done. I was finished. I didn't want to play again. So I finished at the end of that season. I had offers to carry on and I didn't want to. I was done. Um, and after everything I'd been through, my back and my blood clot and everything else, your perception in life changes. Your perspective changes. Your family, your kids, what's important changes. And I was done. So I had six months off and it got to about December time. And I'm thinking, you've had such a good career, you don't want it to end like that. And I'm thinking, I've got to get myself fit and start again. If I want to do this again at 40, I can't, but I can have one last go now. Yeah. So Steve Sutcliffe, my old goalie coach Suts. at Leeds, yeah, yeah, Sutcliffe was at Forest. Yeah. He's a real good guy, I phoned up yeah, and guy. said, Sutcliffe, we've been out of it for six months. said, put on a bit of timber, need to get fit. Do you fancy any chance of coming in? I was traveling from here to Nottingham every day. Dougie Friedman was in charge. Yeah got myself fit flying loving it enjoying it again there was a possibility i could have signed there but forest were embargoed at the time so they had to empty some out of the squad to get me in in that time matt Jukes at burnley dislocated his elbow dicey phones me up what are you doing what state are you in where are you I said, i'm training at forest i'm said i'm fit and ready to go he said can i have a chat i said yeah went down and saw him on monday in his office sat in his office for three hours had a proper chat with him proper man management, great bloke, my type of person. Real good chat about football, about life, what I wanted from things, what he wanted from things. He went, right, well, that's what we've got to offer you. I went, well, can I at least have a tank of petrol to get here every day? (laughs) (laughs) And I I wasn't doing it for anything, no money, no nothing. It was a gym membership. That's what it was for me. Burnley for the first few months was a gym membership, but I loved it. Loved training every day with Billy Mercer, with Tom Heaton, helped Tom as like a little bit of a mentor to him around the place. Mm And I found my love for the game again. And we got promoted that year. I got another medal, I mean, for doing nothing apart from going to the gym every day and training at Burnley. And it was fantastic. It was just a great atmosphere to be around. And he said, do you want another year? said, I want you to do another year in the Premier League. Ended up playing in the Premier League at 37, 38, 37 it was. Um, And it was a great way to finish. At the end of that season, my back kicked in again because of the intensity of the training and what I was doing. My back just went, oi, you forget how old you are. Enough. And I spent the last four weeks of the season, that season in the treatment room. And I knew I was done. I knew I wasn't right. We went to Dubai that year, with the family and Dice. She said, I want you to do another year next year. There's, there's another contract, same again. It was fantastic. I loved it. And I said to him, I said, look, I've spent the last four weeks of this season in the physio room. I said, I'm not just going to take it for the sake of taking it. I said, if I'm not right, I'm not doing it. I said, I know myself. I was struggling getting in and out of cars again. I knew the pain was back and I knew where I was. He went, go away in the summer with your family. He said, phone me when you come back off holiday. Phone me two weeks before the start of pre-season and we'll have a conversation. He said, I want you here next year. So I phoned him a couple of weeks before pre-season. I said, Gaffer, I can't. I'm done. I said, it's nothing's changed. I'd be coming in and starting the season in the physio room. I said, it's been fantastic. Thank you. I'm done. He went, phone me next week. He said, give it another week. See how it is. <laughs> so anyway, he, oh, gave me, he gave me literally till the start of pre-season. And I, I couldn't do it, but I was in a really good place, and I knew that that was me done.
1: So I mean, just looking it back on it on it all, Rob, a long career. I mean, you've you've told me before those those four years at Spurs were you know amongst the favourite, probably the favourite of time of your f- footballing career. Just sum it all up, those four years at Spurs. How do you look back on it now?
2: Yeah, best decision I made coming down to Spurs. Best football I played. The White Hart Lane as an away player was always a favourite ground. It uh, remains a special place. The relationship I had with the fans there. Four four and a half years, yeah, playing the best football. I mean, I went at twenty three, ended up as England's number one within three months. It's yeah, it's the best best time of my career.
1: Fifteen years later, that relationship still stands, doesn't it? Really, the yeah, fans. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the fans go are always great with you.
2: Working, it's it is, it's brilliant. Yeah.
1: Robbo, it's always a
2: pleasure to see thank you. you. Thank you, Player nice that you helped both.
0: me, guide me through my early days of Spurs career. Dug you you of a lot of holes <laughs> oh, I was waiting for it. Look, just team <laughs> him up there, robo Once again, thank you very much. But we're not letting you go just yet. Everyone who sits on the podcast has seven questions, and here we go.
1: First up, what is your favourite piece of football memorabilia?
2: Neville Southall's original black Everton shirt. First goalkeeper to wear a black shirt, hence the reason that in the second season at Tottenham I had one. Yeah.
1: Spurs ever favourite kit?
2: First one that I wore, one. the blue one. Blue one? I blue one. remember that? Kappel, one, yeah. light Kappa. blue one. Yeah. yeah, Kappa, debut one, light blue one.
1: Brilliant. Okay, next up, the favourite Spurs player you played with?
2: Present company accepted, obviously. Um <laughs> Not, nothing to do per, as in personally or quality player or anything.
1: Your, your, your decision.
2: Nouradine neighbor What a guy. I've heard incredible what a guy. About, what a guy. Him, yeah. Nothing to do with his quality on the pitch but I think he was at the the tipping point of his career let's say. Player Ledley Kino, but as a guy Neighbor. it'd
0: have been perfect Nabet though when he stops the ball with the bottom of his foot and just passed it it'd have been now, perfect now for Brighton
2: wouldn't he well, just if, stand if,
1: there
0: suck him in pass it there you
2: go if he does stop it though half the time he's like that he's yeah, gone yeah, true. <laughs>
1: uh, your all time Spurs five a side team from the players you played with you, obviously were you in goal
2: the Robert players in goal. I played with um, four to go? me in goal Ledley Keynote, Carrick Defoe a lot of goals, goals in there. That's is it? it? it, what you need, and there's not much defence going on there, is there? Yeah.
0: If you had one bit of advice, life advice, what would it be? To who? Anyone. Anyone out
2: there Anyone listening? listening watching? There's different advice that I'd give to him <laughs> as to what I give to my kids. Do you know I mean? There's <laughs> some people that need a lot of different advice.
0: <laughs> a bit of guidance.
2: Um, it's not a practice run. You're only here once. Do it your way. I love
1: that. I love that. Who is your unsung hero at Spurs? It could be a player that didn't get the plaudits that you thought he deserved. It could be someone behind the scenes.
2: Chris Hughton. I think Chrisy, the amount of time what he spent at the club. I what mean, people guy. who had anything to do with Chrisy understands his relationship with players. His enthusiasm every day was infectious. Never once have I seen that man in a bad mood. Apart from when I sat in the dugout dug opposite him and he was having a go with Aishi at Burnley, and I'm like. Chris, he's just swarmed.
0: <laughs> <Come
2: on. laughs> what a great what guy. guy. Chris Euton. What in a player o- he was, by the way. Yeah.
0: In your opinion, the Spurs' ever greatest player. Ever? Could we just be just our or if you want to go Jimmy back to... Jimmy
2: Greaves. And it's got Greaves. to be Jimmy Greaves. I mean, Harry's got to be up there with him now, but I think that recent players don't get the nostalgia that and the level of admiration that you do looking back uh, in time. Gazza would be up there for me. Gazza's one of my favourites. Gaza, Jimmy Greaves, some, you know, one of those two.
1: And there's one person I want to ask you about who you touched on very briefly is Ray Clements. Yeah. I know he, he's a guy that means a lot, a lot to you, meant a lot to you, your coach. Yeah. He's a Spurs legend as well as a Liverpool legend. Just tell us about no, Clem and the influence
2: he had on you. Clem was great for me at England. He's my goalie coach at England for a long time. And when I wasn't playing as a youngster, he helped develop me. And he was, he was great off the field as well. He used to love playing golf with Clem. That was one of the best things about going away on England trips, he played golf. Um, but through the good and the bad there's one thing he would never change he would always be on a level it was you hear managers saying never get too high never get too low Clem was always the same and he was an ex- extremely good coach uh, a great guy to work with um, and he's obviously sadly missed Robbo thank you very much thank Robo. You. once again thank
1: you very Bye much away. mate Sports Social Podcast Network